The School of Advanced Military Studies educates members of our armed forces, our allies, and agencies at the graduate level to become agile and adaptive leaders who are critical and creative thinkers who produce viable options to solve operational and strategic problems. Dr. G. Scott Gorman, Deputy Director of Academics, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, holds a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from the Air Force Academy, a Master of Arts in Russian History from Indiana University, and a Master of Military Art and Sciences from the School of Advanced Military Studies, and a Ph.D. in International Relations from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. In this episode, Dr. Gorman gives an overview of what SAMS is, what they teach, how they select candidates, and what they can expect them to be able to do after they graduate. It's a super interesting and intellectual conversation. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. Welcome back to another episode of the Raven Report podcast. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I have a, a couple of very special guests. One, I have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Craig uh, Burles, who's uh, returning uh, again. And uh, lastly, I have, or next, I have uh, Dr. Scott Gorman, who I'll, I'll let him uh, kind of introduce himself. Thanks, Brandon. Really appreciate uh, well, I, you inviting uh, me to join. Yeah, well, uh, first off, uh, again, Dr. Gorman, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to introduce everybody to Dr. Scott Gorman. So he is currently the director of the Advanced Strategic Leadership Studies Program as part of the famous School of Advanced Military Studies. So a lot of people in the Army they've heard of or know about SAMS and just want to make sure there's SAMS has three parts. I'll let Dr. Gorman kind of talk about SAMS a little bit. A bit. Uh, Dr. Gorman is a retired uh, colonel of the United States Air Force. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from the United States Air Force Academy. He has a Master's of Arts in Russian History from Indiana University and a Master of Military Arts and Science from the School of Advanced Military Studies. He holds a PhD in International Relations from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, Dr. Gorman has published uh, tons of articles and works, mostly around complexity about the history of B, uh, B-29s. Uh, like I said, currently he uh, was the deputy director of the School of Advanced Military Studies. Now he's the director of basically the War College here at the School of Advanced, Advanced Military Studies. So uh, he was he was my, um, he was here when I was here in 2015-16. Uh, he's super influential in you know, my education. And now, you know, he's basically uh, in charge of me here at, at the War College here at the uh, at, at Sam. So, Dr. Gorman, again, thank you for joining us. I was hoping maybe you could start out by talking about uh, what is the School of Advanced Military Studies, kind of why does the Army have it, and how it kind of fits in. Yeah, sure can. Thank, thanks, Craig, for the uh, introduction. Really appreciate that. Um, yeah, let me talk just quickly about uh, SAMS and, and what it involves. So as, as you just described, uh, not many people know that SAMS actually consists of three different programs. So there's the uh, kind of the what people are usually familiar with. That's the Advanced Military Studies Program, and that's the uh, the course for majors. It's a second year course that follows uh, attendance at the Commander General Staff Officers Course, so a staff college. Uh, the second part of SAMS, and we can talk more details about what MSP uh, entails exactly here in a second. But the second uh, part of SAMS, the second program is the Advanced Strategic Leadership Studies Program, uh, the one that uh, Colonel Broyles is in this year, uh, the one that I, I direct. And that is a one seminar, it's a war college uh, program. Uh, it is joint professional mili military education level two accredited. Uh, and just like AMSP, uh, ASLSP students get a master's degree when, when they're finished. So it is, it, it is SAMS taken to the strategic level as opposed to AMSP, which is at the operational level. And then the third program is our newest, and that is uh, uh, ASP3, the Advanced Strategic Planning and Policy Program. And what that is, is a cooperative uh, PhD program. Uh, what the Army does is, uh, and this is only for active duty Army officers, uh, not the reserve component, just active duty. Uh, they take uh, officers, select them to be part of the program, 
then those officers go out and they uh, earn acceptance of the PhD programs at, uh, at universities, not just across the US, but internationally as well. And then they go out and they, they earn their PhD. Uh, so it, it's, it is a chance to develop PhDs who become uh, strategic planners and strategic leaders uh, for the Army. So those, those are the three programs at SAMS. And I don't know, Brandon, Craig, if you, you want me to talk a little more in depth about any of those or, or where we go from there. Well, I think, you know, the one thing I wanted to, I think out in the force uh, and probably in the Washington Army National Guard, there's a little bit of here, hey, what SAMS is and, and why officers. I was hoping that maybe you could talk about, because SAMS isn't really a part of the professional military education that's mandated by officers. So it's, it's, it's kind of different. I think it has kind of a reputation you know, the, you know, the brainiacs or, you know, all those things, things. I was hoping you could talk about uh, why does the Army have SAMS and what role is it supposed to fill that maybe the other professional mil military education doesn't have? Yeah, sure. Um, so most of what I what I say will we'll focus on the majors course and the second year program uh, designed for field grade officers, senior captains, majors. Um, probably good to go back to the, the founding of SAMS, the history, why the Army originally in the mid-1980s uh, formed SAMS. And that was because there was, a, there was a need for people to think through some of the difficult operational problems that the U.S. faced in the, in the middle of the Cold War. So it was uh, to, to essentially develop operational planners um, who could uh, fight the Cold War uh, in Europe against the Soviets. That, that was where we started. We've come a long way since then. So it's, it's not just a school for operational planning, as most people uh, understand it to be. But I, I like to think of it as a school for uh, leadership, uh, even intellectual leadership. It's, it's a place where uh, you know, the Army uh, creates assets, creates officers who have these skills to go out and solve hard operational and strategic problems. So that really is the role of, of SAMS. And it's not just the Army, it's also the, uh, the joint force and for our partner nations as well, because we, we have uh, uh, Air Force, Marine, occasionally Navy representatives in the course, uh, and we have lots of partner nations who participate as well. Um, so that, that is the role of SAMS. Uh, so SAMS is, I mentioned it's a second year program. So everybody who comes to SAMS, first of all, you have to volunteer. So it's a two-part process, you volunteer, and then there's a, a pretty detailed uh, selection process that you go through that involves uh, taking a test, uh, giving a writing sample, doing an interview. Um, and from the pool of volunteers, uh, we select about 100 officers uh, each year uh, to attend the course. Uh, so, so it is very selective. So it, it is uh, kind of a cut above uh, what uh, attends CGSOC, the, the, the staff course. Uh, the purpose of staff course is to uh, develop competent staff officers who are, are well-educated in doctrine, war fighting, those types of things that you'll need to be a good staff officer. SAMS, the Advanced Military Studies Program, takes you a step beyond that. So it's not just about being a competent staff officer, which you have to be, but it's also being a competent operational problem solver. So a thinker and a planner um, to, to serve, serve the Army. We like to describe uh, MSP as a three-year program. So it's that year in the staff college, the second year you spend uh, with us uh, doing hard intellectual things uh, at SAMS. Then the third year is a utilization assignment, um, third and, and usually it's a two-year assignment uh, where you go off to a division or core uh, operational planning staff and lead operational planning teams in, in doing that operational problem solving. So it's, it's really a three-year program if, if you look at look at it that way. When my experience was, I went to Sam's at 15, 16. He talks like it, it you know, it's it's pretty um, uh, formal. It, it was, it was. I went to ranger school in, uh, in 304 and, and Sam's to me was the equivalent of intellectual ranger school. I mean, it is like being sucked through like a black hole from the minute you get there to the minute you end. I, I, I don't think I... Uh, I, I look back and I'm like, what just happened to me? I mean, it is quite a ride for anybody who hasn't gone. I, you know, they talk about the Sam's brand. I was wondering, Brandon, you know, you're out in the force. What's kind of your perception of what Sam's is? Yeah. So, um, as, as just an officer that, that's uh, out serving at, at the battalion level and, and kind of uh, working a little bit on the brigade level, uh, 
it's always looked at like, like you, you're expected to go to um, uh, to ranger school like kind of at the battalion level. But then if you really want to be serious uh, and like you really want to take your career somewhere, Sam's is like the the ranger the the next step for ranger school because um, it, it really does seem seem to craft a certain type of an individual that not only can solve hard problems, but uh, once that's kind of been uh, enabled in them, that they they seek them out and and they're they're looking at like. Not only what's the hard problem we want to solve, but like what is a creative way that we can do it even better than the last guy. Uh, and so it's definitely something that uh, I know that at least in our formation, it's uh, it's sought after by uh, by the people that, that really want to get things done. And uh, we have a lot of people that, that are kind of aiming for it, applying for it. I think we have a major Hayden who's about to go in or uh, should be there uh, pretty soon. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it, no doubt. It is an intellectually demanding program. It's it's not easy. It's uh, when you volunteer for Sam's, you're you're volunteering for a lot of work, um, no doubt. But there's there's a pretty big reward uh, for all that work that you put in. You know, the 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 real value of Sam's in my eyes is it gives you that year to develop yourself intellectually and professionally. Um, it's a year that uh, you know it doesn't mean that that you're any better than anybody else, but it it's an opportunity that you'll have that others may not uh, get a chance to, to take part in. And it does mean on, on the far end, when you, when you graduate, you are a desired commodity uh, in, in the army. I mean, without a doubt, uh, senior leaders are looking for Sam's grads to come and serve in their formations. So that, that absolutely is a, an advantage uh, of, of Sam's. So that, uh, Again, it leads me to a question like what makes uh, you say that you're trying to craft intellectuals. What makes a um, a good intellectual like as opposed to just uh, somebody who just went through like CGSOC and, and, uh, and kind of like, you know, check the block and moved on. What makes a Sam's grad uh, that much different? Yeah, I have to be careful with the words I use because I don't want uh, people to think that uh, we're developing pointy-headed uh, intellectuals coming out of, of SAMS because really that's not. We want people who can be effective uh, for the Army. So I always talk about when we go through planning methods and we go th through uh, conceptual planning uh, like design and those types of things that we have to keep in mind that the ultimate reason why we do what we do and we think the way we think is so that we can uh, have take effective action on the ground, right? So we can we can write effective plans, we can write, develop effective strategies that we can give to units, subordinate units, and they can they can take effective action with those plans. So that that's that's why why Sam's is, is here. So now that said, you know what do we do to to make people think differently? Because that that is what Sam's ends up doing, uh, and Colonel Broyles can attest, I think, um, you know how. Uh, students change intellectually from the time that they arrive at SAMS versus the time that they leave. You know, when when field grade officers come to SAMS, uh, they've got a successful tactical career behind them. So they have been, you know, company commanders. They have been, uh, uh, they may have been executive officers. They, they, they've served in, in positions in uh, company and below, essentially, uh, and, and done great things. But they've spent that time, again, thinking tactically which is different than what's required as a field grade officer, where now you're asked to think bigger and broader. You're asked to think about things that are more strategic in nature, right? And then to tie those, those strategic ideas to uh, that tactical execution that you have to figure out how to, to make happen. And, and that's where operational art, which is a focus of, uh, of SAMS, is that operational uh, level ties the tactical to the strategic. So, so how do we do that? Well, it's, it involves exposing students to a lot of different things that they probably wouldn't have picked up on their own. So you, you read across the discipline. So you're not just reading uh, military theory and military history, but you know, uh, Colonel Broyles can, can talk about you know, some of the things he read, everything from you know, literature from business, uh, different uh, uh, academic disciplines, you know, uh, anthropology, psychology, uh, all, all kinds of things, philosophy, um, lots and lots of history, uh, history beyond, beyond military history. Um, so things that broaden your perspective on, uh, on problems, on operational problems. We talk a lot in the course about uh, complexity and about um, you know, how you deal with complex problems and how that's different than kind of straightforward mechanical 
problems that, that you're more likely to, to deal with on the, on the tactical level. So, you know, the, the nonlinearity of problems, the, uh, the uh, enduring nature of problems, you know, it's not just about uh, resolving issues, about victory, about winning now. It's about continuing on uh, in, uh, where we establish positions of advantage for that next thing that's coming. So it's about, about not just uh, winning this, but it's about, okay, what happens next? So it's, it's thinking entirely differently than you may have thought about uh, throughout your career. So, so by exposing you to uh, all these things and making you read a lot, um, it just changes the way you look at problems. Um, it's, again, that, that is kind of the unstated purpose of SAMS is to change the way you think and therefore become a more effective uh, problem solver. Right, I hear you saying that like uh, you've got a lot of, uh of uh, like, you know, like reading that you ha have the students uh, to, to do. And, uh, the, you know, and to kind of the point that you said with uh, Colonel Rolls and the things that he, he read, uh, one of the things that, that I remember him uh, suggesting that I read was uh, Norm McLean's, uh, oh, uh, was the, the, his, uh, the book about the, the Blood Gulch Fire. I always forget the name of it. Yeah, Young, Young Men and Fire. Fire. Young Men and Fire, it's right? The it's the first book you read at Sam's. And I, I it was funny because I talked to a couple of people and, when I first went through the AMSP, I was like, it's a great story, but I had no idea why we read it. It took me for like the whole year to figure out why we read it. And I was talking to a couple of people the other day who was getting ready to go to Sam's and they were like, that was a good story, but why do we read it for? So anyway, yeah, it's a young men in fire. It's the first book you read. Yeah. So you can correct me on this, but like, it, uh, it, that was a perfect suggestion at a perfect time in my life where I was thinking through, uh, the use of metaphor, uh, in, in like storytelling and stuff, it almost that like, uh, fiction is like philosophy applied to a hypothetical thing, and uh, he, he had suggested that, and and like you know, kind of made the point that like really this is this this isn't about the blood gulch fire. This is about his wife's cancer. I thought that was really really profound um, a way to kind of uh, you know explore that whole realm. So if you could speak to the way y'all craft your reading list or that, like I'd be very interested to hear your perspective. No, that's, that, yeah, that's that's a great book, Brandon. It's good to, good to hear that you read that because uh, it, you know we use it for a bunch of different reasons. One reason is because it's just a, a great piece of writing. Uh, Norm McLean is a, is a great writer and just to be exposed to, to good writers is a way to improve your own writing right. and, and your own thinking uh, uh, as a result as well. But so that's, that's one reason. But yeah, it's uh, we use that book because it's a way of getting at military problem solving without talking about military things. So if you think about how, uh, you know, the author goes about trying to figure out what happened at Van Gulch, um, you know, he takes himself through a process of a theory of the phenomenon of fire. So trying to understand how fire works and how forest fires work. And then he thinks about, okay, the knowing what fire does, how, how can I fight fires? A theory of action. So he, he's thinking through, you know, how do I act to keep, uh, prevent those, those bad things that happened at Man Gulch from happening again? So it's, it's all about problem solving and, and how you go through that. It's also about leadership. So if you think about uh, you know, a situation where you know, the leader uh, is put in this desperate situation, uh, very uncertain what's going on, uh, it's a crisis, moment of crisis, and he comes up with a novel solution um, right. that, that actually saves his own life. And, and you know, it's, it's a unique way of, of reacting to a, a unique situation. Right. So it's, it's, it's about leadership. It's, it's about uh, thinking through problems. It's, it's just a great book to, to start the year because there's lots to talk about through the rest of the year. Well, and Brandon, I was uh, yesterday, I was talking to Dr. Gorman in preparation for this. I mentioned kind of a book you turned me on to. Uh, when, remember that one time you and I were talking about books we'd read and you said one of your favorite books was uh, The Old Man of the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I was like, what? And so I remember I read that book the first time. I'm like, what the hell did I just read? Like, I didn't understand. Like, but anyway, and then you, know, you read it more and I I mentioned that to uh, Dr. Gorman. He said he loved that book, and I thought it'd be kind of cool to you know, let you, uh, Dr. Gorman, talk about uh, what, what you like about that book, and maybe Brandon, you too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that definitely is one of my favorites as well. I, I, I will read that book, reread that book uh, uh, quite often as well. It's just, it's just a great book. Again, it's, a, it's an example of, of great writing. You know, I love Hemingway's style of just, you know, it rained, the sun, the sun came out. It, it's just very simple, straightforward, but there's a much deeper message that, that he communicates by through the story of, you know, going out to sea and, and uh, catching a big fish. And it's, it's, it's a much deeper story. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like the, um, I, I've got a long personal history uh, uh, with that book. I, I still have the original copy that I stole from my English teacher when I was in 12th grade. It's, it's, I got electrical tape holding it together. Uh, and I'll read it just about every year. The last time I read it was actually on a hunt in um, in Washington this this past September. Um, I just took it with me and just read it there. But uh, you know, at first, the, the first blush of, of reading it was like, it reminded me of all these old men that taught me how to fish, that they were just super hard, super tough uh, guys. The older I got and the more, uh, the, the you know, there's a, a theory called like read receipt that like, you know, like you, you read a book, it means one thing to you, you know, today and then, you know, and tomorrow you have another set of experiences, you read it again and, and you you digest it differently. Um, it became very much like a, a metaphor for life. And you can see Hemingway starting to uh, read his own life into it that like he goes out to see, does these great, you know, things that like nobody can really understand. And then you come back and then like, you know, your life's work is like just a, things that are like washed up underneath the dock where tourists, people who have never been there, uh, who don't understand, you know, look at it and, and say like, well, yeah, that's cool, whatever. And it's just like, what, like, what better metaphor than, uh, you know, a life, you know, well served in, in the military that like you go out, you do these great, great things. And then uh, at the end of the day, you're, you know, a museum exhibit at best uh, and no one will fully understand what it's like to catch the big fish. Yeah, I, th I think it's a great observation that, you know, it, you read it at different points in your life and it means different things to you. you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than uh, both of you. Um, so it, it means a lot of different things. You know, when you're young and you read that book, it's it's all about being excited for that uh, that fishing uh, expedition and going out and, and you know, the anticipation of what, what might happen. Uh, when you're old, you know, it's the importance of having fought that that battle with the fish uh, and been successful and survived and, and kind of dragging yourself back back to the shoreline to you know to celebrate what you've done so it, you're you're absolutely right that's the power of that book is it means different things to you at different points in your life yeah, yeah that's great you know it's um one book that i think we i read getting ready for um this this course was i stumbled on uh the book called Russia, the story of war. And for some reason, that book just really opened my eyes to the current problem we're having. And I've read it like, you know, kind of you talked about Brandon, I've read it at least 10 times for some reason, because I just learned so much of it. Interesting. I kind of talked, Dr. Gorman is a Russian history expert. In fact, he spent time at the embassy in Moscow, my riser. Interesting about the situation over there. I'm kind of be interested in the kind of your thoughts on, the Russia way of war and, and uh, what, what you observed about, you know, the situation here, but really about the Russia way of war. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, that, that's a great book. The Russia story of war is a great book because it gets at kind of the larger context of kind of Russian strategic culture, how they think about uh, military things and war and history and th those types of things, because that's, that is important to understanding, you know, whether it's an adversary or friend, um, how they approach uh, those strategic issues, uh, and that's you know that's that's part of the uh, the advanced military studies program curriculum is we go through a course called Great Power Perspectives, where we deliberately try to get at those things, and we ask a series of uh, we call them meta questions that get at the history, the culture, the the uh, you know the a, a country's understanding of of what their role in the world is and how others see them, how say, they see the world. Um, that, that book, Russia's a Story of War, gets at that, how Russia has experienced the world and therefore how they see the world. You know, Craig mentioned that I, I spent some time in Moscow. So my, my utilization tour, essentially, after I graduated from SAMS as an Air Force officer, was the Air Force assigned me to be the chief of, of the Security Assistance Office in Moscow, Russia. And that was in 1999, a pretty difficult time, probably before your living memory, but uh, when... You know, Kosovo had just happened. Uh, the Russians were very miffed at the, at the U.S. and the Western uh, NATO because of the way they were treated. Um, so it was tough trying to, to get a foothold with the Russian military to do security assistance type things uh, with the Russian military. So I, I found I spent a lot of my time dealing with other organizations, not, not the Russian military, but sometimes the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or uh, uh, different agencies. Uh, different civilian agencies uh, in, in the Russian Federation. It was also an interesting time because um, it was, you know, the, not, not but 10 years uh, after the end of the Cold War. And, you know, Russia was going through this very turbulent period of trying to decide what kind of state it was going to become. You know, it was trying to figure out how to be a liberal democracy and, and, and 
do the things you need to do for a, a functioning capitalist economy. So it was, it was an interesting thing to observe. In fact, uh, I, I was there to see Putin actually assume the office of president and, and watch him kind of grow and change uh, as, as a leader, which now looking back is, is really fascinating. Um, thinking, thinking through what's, what's happened in the, the intervening years. Yeah, it's, uh, my, my main point to get to Craig's question about you know, understanding of what's going on right now is just we really ought to focus on uh, to understand why the Russians do what they do and how they see Ukraine in the ways that they see it. Uh, you have to understand their history. You have to understand what's gone before and, and the ways that they, they view the world and the ways that they view the role of the, uh, the military and war in, in their society. That's you have to understand that. Right. So um, thinking about that, so you bring up that, that, you know, Putin kind of morphed and changed uh, my and you can correct me by all means. But like uh, my understanding is that like he was a KGB officer turned politician uh, that basically went in and then co-opted the the Russian mob more or less into uh, to solidifying control Um and you're, you're saying that, like, you know, he kind of changed more over the years. Can you, you speak to that from, like, that personal experience? Yeah, well, uh, Putin is, is probably, he's a, he's a great uh, chameleon, right? So he kind of uh, does what he needs to do to get himself into positions of power. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked his way, you're, you're absolutely right, he had his background in KGB, had worked in East Germany a lot. Um, he had worked in the, the administration of the city of St. Petersburg, so he made a lot of connections there. Um but he'd worked his way into what was known as the family, the, the group that surrounded uh, Boris Yeltsin. And that's really how he kind of worked his way to the position of president of, of the Russian Federation. Um, once he was there, uh, then you know, he, he uh, probably became more of who he really was. And that, that's that KGB officer uh, who had uh, pretty uh, uh, authoritarian leaning uh, values in terms of where he thought the Russian Federation needed to go. So, and we've, we've seen that over the past, uh, you know, 24 years. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, for perspective to have on him, uh, for sure. And so, uh, to, to speak to, to like the, the, the Russian problems that like, uh, understand that uh, you know russia's been invaded multiple times throughout throughout the years and they look at ukraine as like uh, that strategic ground to basically kind of defend themselves uh or to cut cut their defensive frontage down to, to europe um what so like it doesn't look i mean like from from right now when we're recording this it doesn't look like they're they're gonna be that successful at securing ukraine now granted it's still i mean relatively early i suppose that like they could turn it around but if they don't secure it and let's say uh you know that ukraine ends up in nato What's the future look like strategically for them? Because they're not going to just like want to let that go. That you know, they're, it's going to continue to be the case. So, are we looking at more of like going back to kind of like a hybrid model of, of war, uh, some sort of like crazy IO campaign, or 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 what? Now, that's a great question. That's a that's a Sam's level question, as uh, Colonel Broyles knows, because they just spent the last week uh, kind of looking at that that question: what what uh, how Ukraine is going to eventually resolve itself, and what comes next. Um, uh, hard to say, you know, that's, we live in a probabilistic world. So there are a lot of different futures that possible futures that, that, uh, might uh, end up taking shape. But from, from where I see it, I, I think you're right. I think, uh, that, that Putin underestimated a couple of things strategically when he, when he did what he did. The first was, uh, he underestimated the Ukrainian will to resist and the fact that Ukraine sees itself as an, as an independent, uh, country and nation. Um, the second thing he underestimated was the, the will of NATO to back up Ukraine and to stand for international norms of sovereignty, non-intervention, all those things that, that you know, we, we value. Um, so, you know, I, I think he got that part wrong. Uh, another thing he underestimated was the strength of the Russian military, the capability of the Russian military, which has kind of been exposed in terms of, you know, some of their failings and their, their uh, inability to, to do some of the things that, that were required. So all those things uh, are, are not in his favor. So how does that how does that resolve itself? That's hard to say. You know, that's yet yet to be determined. Um, I I do think uh, you know the Ukrainians probably are not going to stop fighting until they um, have all of Ukraine back. So whether we in the West want a negotiated settlement or we want the war to end, well, that's, it ultimately isn't up to us. It's up to the Ukrainians. So we'll we'll see how that goes. 
you know, there, there's also the possibility we t- we talk about in class that, uh, you know, we we usually don't anticipate the way things end. So very few of us anticipated the way the Cold War ended, right? Okay. So there there could be some uh, dramatic uh, event, whether it's uh, you know Putin's downfall or or some kind of economic collapse or even the collapse of the Russian military that that ends up uh, resolving the situation. But again, then thinking strategically, we have to think about okay, well, what does that mean for for the West, for the United States? You know, what what additional problems do we now will, will we be faced with? When you think about the nuclear weapons that uh, Russia Russia has, when you think about the, uh, the you know hundreds of thousands of people that live in Russia and and you know their subsistence and and what do you do with a broken economy? Um, so they're they're hard hard to say where this goes, but uh, it, it will be interesting times, no doubt. Yeah, uh, one of the things I'm kind of uh, I, I'll make it quick, but one of the things that I've kind of got become become more concerned with is that like a like just last night, I was watching a a, a, a interview uh, with the the Joint Chiefs, and they were they were basically completely focused on Indo PACOM, which I, I don't think is necessarily a bad shift uh, for a lot of reasons. But the uh, you could tell that the the underlying tone is, is that like, well, we were really worried about Russia. Now we see that they're not really something to be worried about. So now let's look, look at this thing over here, and like you kind of get to that shiny object over there. That like you know, just because they may suck right now doesn't mean they're going to suck in ten years. And something that we need to like you know make sure that we still keep tabs on. So I don't know. But Colonel Royals, you have, uh, you want to jump in? No, no I, I I would just want to kind of talk uh, anecdotally. I thought it would be it to share with you, Brandon. So two things was uh, one of the cool things about the program that we're in. We actually go to these field studies. So one of the things we actually went out to like uh, to to Finland. We went to Estonia and visited the, the Baltic uh, college there. Interesting enough, we were 30 minutes from Lake Pipus, which if you know Russian history, that is where Alexander Nevsky famously defeated the Teutonic Knights back in like 12, uh, something like that. Maybe it was a super famous place. When I was standing there, I was like, holy cow, I can't, what a, a kind of surreal moment. But anyway, when we were there, one of the members made a comment that kind of became famous in our class. He made, he said, uh, you know, uh, a Russian is always a Russian, even if you fry him in butter. And and it was funny because uh, later on I was on a fishing trip with this Finland guide, and he was complaining about when he takes Russians fishing because they'll they'll be you know ingrate gratitude or they'll be you know rude or different things like that. I kind of made a comment to him. I was like, well, you know, I heard that uh, you all say that uh, a Russian is a Russian even is still a Russian even if you fry him in butter. And the guy looked at me funny, and he just busted out laughing. And he laughed and la- about fell off the boat. He laughed so hard. I couldn't. And he goes, I've never heard that in English before. Yeah, we say that all the time. That's just the first time I ever heard it in English. But anyway, it was just it was pretty funny how we, you know, we were right there and how, how, you know, Finland sees it and all that. One thing, you know, what I wanted to ask Dr. Gorman, and I, he does a really good job, is when I started this course here, he's really good about describing the difference between strategic thinking and tactical thinking. And it, it sounds simple and it sounds like, oh, OK, that that's not it's really hard. It's a lot harder than I thought it was. And uh, one thing Dr. Gorman is is really good at describing the difference between tactical thinking and strategic thinking. And I think that's important because most people in our formation, most officers, most people, they think everything is like that. Tactical thinking is, is the way everybody thinks. And they're, they're not even introduced to a different way of thinking called strategic thinking. And uh, I just wanted Dr. Gorman to kind of talk a little bit about that because he, he says it a lot better than I do. So that's okay. Yeah, sure, I can do that. So, you know, we talked about uh, as officers coming up and, and being successful, you're, you're involved with tactical things. So your your tactical thinking is ingrained. It's the way, way we all think coming up through the military, right? Tactical thinking is about winning. It's about taking the hill. It's about planting the flag. It's about culmination. It's about ending things, right? So it's about taking the resources you have and playing the game that you've been assigned, following the rules and winning the game, winning the game, as opposed to strategic thinking is about continuation. So it's not about culmination. It's not about ending things, but it's about, it's, it's about, okay, what comes next and how do we put ourselves in a position of advantage so that we can do even better next time. So it's, it's all about continuation. So then the real challenge is, okay, if there are these two modes of thinking based upon the kind of problems that you're dealing with and at what levels you're dealing with, Matt, is how do you translate between the two? Because, you know, at the upper levels uh, where things are really complex and they involve a lot of dynamic interdependent things, 
Um, you know, we come up with these strategies, but they have to be translated into tactical actions, right? They have to be translated into plans for how do we win then on the battlefield? What do we do with that? So, you know, as a, uh, what ties them together is this thing, operational art. So it's the, uh, uh, the uh, integration or the, the arrangement of tactical actions in time, space, and purpose uh, such that you achieve in whole or in part these strategic objectives. So the operational artist, the operational planner, the, the people that are graduating from SAMS are the ones that have to live with a foot in both worlds, right? So they have to be proficient tactical thinkers so that they can win the battles, that they can devise effective plans in order to, to, to win. But then they also have to be strategic thinkers. They have to think strategically uh, in order to, you know, put us in a position where we can we can win the next war as well. It's not just this war, but we can win the next one too because we're, we're, we've prepared for it, we've thought through it. Um, operational art ties the two together. So it takes strategic things, strategic thinking, and applies it, uh, uh, arranges tactical actions in order to achieve the strategic objects that we, we set out, out, to, out to achieve. Makes sense. So I don't know if that was a clear explanation, Craig, but uh, try my best. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it. so. What you're saying is that like um, operational level thinking is a finite game with a with a clear end insight, whereas strategic le level thinking is a infinite game where it's like you're still going to have to play tomorrow regardless if you win today. Yeah, and that, that's that's a perfect analogy because that's based it's that's what it's based on. That's kind of the theory behind it. Um, James Karsh is the one that wrote the original book about uh, finite, infinite games. I recommend it to anybody that hasn't read it. it sounds like you've already read that, Brandon. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great book that that talks about you know hey we're all playing this that both a finite and an infinite game you know the infinite game is about continuation it's not just about you uh, succeeding in your lifetime it's about you uh, kind of creating an environment around you that those around you can succeed that your progeny that your 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 kids your grandkids uh, can, can continue the the infinite game so it's 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 a combination of both both worlds that we live in. Yeah, I'll tell a story on, on uh, Colonel Burles that, that kind of like taught me that in uh, in real life, not necessarily intentionally, but the uh, we we uh, had a, a big victory early on with our kind of our social media campaign, and we ended up getting like a thousand followers from this like one action. And we were standing in front of building one. And he goes, "Oh yeah, that's really good." He goes, "What are you gonna do tomorrow?" And I was like, um, "I don't know." <laughs> so so then it became like a whole whole new uh, game. So, but it was a, a very uh, cerebral experience for me just because. It, it uh made you realize or like made me realize that like the moment may be good but like there's always tomorrow and we need to be like you know setting up the chessboard for that so. yeah that's that's a great i mean it's a philosophical observation right it's it's not you can never be satisfied with where you're at um it's what's behind the, the this uh idea of adult education you know continuing your intellectual development continuing to read continuing to prepare because you, you don't know what comes next, then you want to be prepared for it, right? No matter what age you are, the, things are always changing. There's always something else that, that uh, you know, you'll have to face. Right. Well, you know, one thing um, I think Dr. Gorman does, I mean, like I said, Dr. Gorman, he's, he's always humble and I appreciate that. But when he's in our class, I think I'd appreciate when he talks, well, everybody just stops and listens because, you know, he's, he's super impactful. One thing he, he taught in our class I was good is, a lot of times, I think we view our the Western democracy, our country, as a little bit of a disadvantage, right? Because we're so, um, what sometimes it seems like our method of government can be kind of chaotic, maybe not as efficient as it possibly can be, and maybe author, auto, autocratic uh, governments seem to be more you know, efficient. They seem to get things done quicker. But one thing I think he does really well is describe the advantage that democratic nations really have in the strategic realm, and that's really our are kind of our, our values that we hold, that, that the values that we hold and what we are kind of our narrative seems too weak, but our, our, maybe Dr. Gorman is going to ask you to kind of talk a little about that because you say it much better. Actually, it makes it really hopeful of uh, what a position advantage America is because of the values that are democratic values that we hold. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I hear people all the time talk about, uh, you know, oh, if only we were Putin or Z and, and, and we could, uh, you know, just make a decision and, and implement, implement a strategy and, and nobody can argue with us and, and we get it done, right? But the problem with that is that, yeah, authoritarian regimes can act uh, relatively efficiently, but they can also fail very dramatically. 
because when they make an error, it tends to uh, kind of be self-reinforced and, and sometimes it can be a huge error. The advantage that democracies have is, you know, in all the give and take that is our democratic process with all the diversity of opinions, with the diversity of perspectives, with diversity of backgrounds and experience, you know, that's, that's all a great thing because we all see, we come at problems from many different perspectives, many different angles. And yeah, it may be painful and it takes us a while, but we eventually get to better solutions, right? And more enduring kind of resilient solutions. And, and when things come up, um, we have many different uh, uh, experiences, perspectives, uh, sources of expertise that can jump in and come up with new solutions to new problems. Right, things that authoritarian governments don't have when they surround themselves with toadies who, you know, simply shake their heads and, and are yes men to, to what's been decided, whether it's right or not, as we see playing out in Ukraine right now. Right. Um, so authoritarian governments can fail spectacularly, uh, whereas you know, liberal democracies over the long term um, tend to be much more successful. Yeah, that was uh, something that, that was a big uh, takeaway I had from uh, Nassim Tlaib's book, uh, Anti-Fragile, because he talks about that. It's just like when you look at the layered, um, you know, Democratic from like your school board all the way up to, you know, Congress, um, the the good ideas tend to catch fire and keep going and, and skipping echelons, whereas the bad ideas get experimented with and people are like, well, we don't want to do that again. And it kind of go, goes away. And you do that at nauseum just over and over and over again. So the, the, the end product over a long period of time seems to be just excellence, you know, even though if it may look, you know, clunky during the, the progression of it, it actually works fairly well, um, which is kind of, you know, I, I like to see the the Army, you know, uh, emulating that with like Mission Command and stuff and, and that, that, that trying to push that initiative super, you know, far down down the, uh, the rabbit hole because you get the same kind of effect uh, with things. So we see people trying something and it works really well, then we, we adopt it and run with it. And if it doesn't work really well, we're like, well, that was good that you tried and we'll go on to the next thing. Yeah, that's an important aspect of, of leadership is that willingness to allow your subordinates to, to do those kind of things, to be innovative and at times to fail, right? Because sometimes fail, failure is, is how we learn, how, how, we, how we get better. So that's, that's important to be that kind of leader. That's, that's good. One thing I wanted to talk while we have Dr. Gorman on, one thing that's impressed me, and I was talking to him yesterday, I've spent about half my career in the National Guard. I've spent half my time in the active component. So I'm, I'm pretty well, I feel pretty comfortable that I know the difference and I can see the difference. And I think when you, the advantage is when one says one component, you kind of just view the military in that world. And when you go back and forth, you see it in, in both. One thing, without a doubt, I've always been impressed with the National Guard is the amount of diversity and talent that's in it. Uh, I know like in our formation, Brandon, the amount of talent we had in our formation was just still blows me in mind. We had people that were, you know, like you or we had people like uh, um, Captain Adams who worked at Microsoft. You know, we had uh, Kramer, you know, first certain Kramer. I could just go on and on. Just incredible amount of talent from vast backgrounds who can really bring such an amount of knowledge into the formation that's kind of outside the way, you know, active component will typically think. And uh, one thing, I don't know if we leverage that talent very well. Sometimes I wonder if we, you know, we try in the National Guard, I think we try to compete with the active component with reps, right? Try to compete with them, what they're good at. They have a lot of reps. But we don't seem to leverage that. I'm interested, you know, from from someone in uh, Dr. Gorman's position where you kind of seen the force, you know, and, and you've been in a long time. I was kind of wondering your opinion on that and, and what could be done about that or if, if anything, you know, how could we really as, as the U.S. government or the you know, DOD take advantage of what the National Guard really has to offer? Yeah, first, first Craig, I, I totally agree with you about uh, the strength of the reserve component. Um, and it, it is that uh, diversity uh, that, that the reserve component represents. Um, and in fact, I mean, even the, the regular component uh, seeks to emulate that, right? When when they do things like broadening assignments, or even now sabbaticals, where you give people a chance to go out and do different things beyond their 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 normal military career, their normal military duties, is just emulating those things in the reserve component that all of you already do, right? You you may have a day job that involves something entirely different that you're you know, you're broadening yourself and bringing a different set of skills and expertise uh, back to your, your military job. So yeah, absolutely. The, the reserve component, the National Guard uh, in particular, is uh, has a wealth of, you know, talent that it offers to, offers to the force. 
the danger is exactly right. You know, we we want that uh, that reserve of talent that we can draw upon, but we can't keep reaching into the bucket too often because you you wear it out. So it, when we start using the, uh, the reserve and guard as an operational force as opposed to a strategic reserve or an oper even an operational reserve, it, you, you wear that force out. So there's a delicate balance that you, that you have to play. You know, I've been really happy that uh, I've noticed in recent years that, that um, the National Guard is really starting to value the SAMS education and what it can do for its officers. So I've noticed uh, not just uh, an increase in the quanti quantity of applicants, but the quality of applicants that are coming to us from, from the various states uh, and the National Guard. And I think it's paying big dividends because I also see uh, our graduates, uh, guardsmen who go out and do very important things for, for not just the state, but uh, states, but also the National Guard Bureau uh, as well. So I, I, I'm, I think the relationship between the National Guard and SAMS is, is, is paying off. It's getting stronger and stronger. And that kind of, I don't know if that answers the question, Craig, in terms of what we can do. I mean, attending SAMS is, is one thing we do to, to strengthen that, that uh, talent. You know, the, the other thing it does is not only does it, it uh, help the Guard, but it helps the, uh, the active component as well, because it exposes them more to what the Guard does, who the Guard is, and, and the diversity of talent that the uh, guardsmen represent. So it, it, it works both ways. Well, uh, one of the professors made a comment late, uh, Dr. Pete Schifferly, I don't know if he's famous in the SAMS world here. He was, he was my monograph director and he was, uh, he's the one to this day I always remember. He, uh, I, I was writing a paper, Brandon. I thought it was a brilliant paper. I thought it was going to blow everybody away with how smart I was. And I wrote this sentence and it was just, just going to be great. And I'll never forget, he wrote in red letters after this brilliant sentence I wrote. Oh, that's cute. And uh, to this day, was always my most derogatory moment ever. But anyway, one thing that Dr. Pete uh, Schifferly talked about, we, we were, he, he we asked a question, he said, could the, uh, can a regular force ever be flexible enough to beat an inflexible enemy or beat a flexible enemy? Sorry. Could the regular, the regular force ever be flexible enough to beat a flexible enemy? And I think he was talking about kind of like the Vietnam War days. And, and I think he was kind of, he was kind of talking about how the National Guard really that one of the benefits it has is its flexibility and its diversity and that one of the maybe the, uh, the fragilities of the of the regular army is it's is its rigidity or you know, you know what i'm saying it's it's almost uniformity and so it's kind of an interesting point that he made about that and so that's kind of your thoughts on kind of maybe that piece yeah i, I do think that's true that there's a, a source of kind of creativity and innovation that comes from uh, people who have different backgrounds not not just uh, like most of us from the regular component you know, who have spent all of their career, their professional career uh, in doing regular military things, right? Not, not other, other things. You know, again, it's, it's to all of our advantage to be broadened in, in as, as many ways as we can. So, you know, guardsmen represent, represent that inherently is they're, in, they're inherently broadened by what they do in the, in the civilian world. You know, and that's another aspect we didn't really talk about is just that connection to the civilian world. Um, that the guard brings, uh, that the military, you know, left to its own tends to, you know, we tend to separate ourselves from, from the civilian world when we ought to be servants and, and direct representatives and, and reflect the civilian world. So that, that connection with uh, the reserve forces brings is, is very important. Yeah, I remember uh, at the end of uh, Richard Simpkins' Race to the Swift, he actually kind of makes this point. He'll, he says uh, something to the effect of like, you know, once you get to a certain level, I think it's like beyond like a major, you really should be like a reserve component officer and and you should be out in, in the business world doing a wide variety of things. So that way, whenever like it, the time comes to break the glass and pull you back into the formation, you bring all of these skill sets or these ideas or perspectives that the military otherwise would have just set on their island and never been able to, to see. Um, and then we talked to uh, Stan McChrystal not too long ago, and he basically said kind of the same thing that that um, the problem with the uh, the active component is that like it's it's a, a cookie cutter you know force that they all do the same thing and they they are really really good at a thing, but the moment that that thing becomes something different, all of a sudden they don't have that. His word was uh, they become uh, so uh, rigid that they become brittle that all of a sudden they just can't 
break out of the uh, that model. And I remember uh, hearing like stories from from the early invasion of Iraq, where uh, there was a uh, an insurgent in a cornfield or some sort of field uh, shooting at them. And so the the commander's that re response was, "Well, we'll just fire some uh, some white phosphorus rounds into that field, and he burned it down." Well, he solved this kind of go back to the infinite game versus finite game that he solved the problem of someone shooting at him, but he just created a, you know, an entire village full of enemies that uh, that you know wanted to, to fight him because they burnt their food source down. And uh, but at the same time, the there was a guy down in uh, I think it was a Kirkuk where they needed to rebuild the uh, the police force, and he had like a detachment of uh, of National Guard infantrymen there. And he said like, Hey, look, uh, you know, our guys don't know anything about policing. Do y'all have any policemen in there? And one like PFC in the back raises his hand, and, and he says, oh, What do you do? And he was like the chief of police for some major uh, <laughs> uh, you know police force. And uh, he had just enlisted to basically go on, on the deployment because he felt like it was his time to go. And uh, that's how they reinstitutionalized, you know, the, the Iraqi police in that area. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good point to make that the flexibility the National Guard actually has and the skills that we bring for sure. Yeah, those, those are great examples to, to illustrate that. You know, I, I can uh, tie it into kind of the way we think about things um, theoretically uh, at SAMS, too. You know, we, we talk about at SAMS, we talk about theory, history, doctrine, and practice, right? So we, we theory is the way that uh, we think the world works, whether it's military theory, you know, the way military things work, or, you know, you could political science theory, internet, whatever, whatever it is. It's how we think the world works in that given uh, domain. Um, ex uh, history then provides the experience from which we derive our theories. So, you know, we... We build our theories based upon what we personally, from the from the start, observe in our own history. But the more diverse experience we have, the more history essentially we have to draw upon, the better our theories can be. Right? So guards can represent that. They represent that diversity of experience that helps us come up with better theory. And then if we you know continue down the trail, uh, doctrine is kind of the crystallization of our theories. So at any moment in time, we say, okay, we think that uh, the military works like this, and this is how we can be effective. And we write it down, we write it in doctrine, we publish a book, and we, we pass it out as the, this is the standard operating procedure, standard way of working. This is our doctrine. But we know that the world around us has changed, continues to change, whether it's because uh, we've got to have adversaries that want to see, our, our, see us defeated or, or just the way things are. So that doctrine necessarily, uh, to some extent, will be wrong. So we, we take our doctrine and we apply it, right? So we, we go out and we do things, we, we interact with the world, and we figure out where the doctrine doesn't work. And, and that's our assessment, our application assessment, and we come back to revising our theories, right? So it's essentially we gain new experience to, uh, to help us to do, do things better uh, in the future. But, but again, back to the, the strength of, of the guard and the reserve component is that, you know, you've got that built in bre uh, breadth of experience uh, that you bring to the force that helps us to think better about how to solve problems. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, so I have a, a kind of a, a personal development question for you. Um, a while back, uh, I, was, I was asking uh, Colonel Burles about Sam's and he said that y'all were big on systems thinking. So, um, I, I took it upon myself to kind of like develop a reading list on systems thinking. And one of the first books I read was uh, The Fifth Discipline. And um, immediately into that, they talk, start talking about the MIT beer game. And, it, you know, the MIT beer game, for everybody who doesn't know, uh, basically starts off that there's a, a music video that uh, features a certain beer. This beer then goes into like high demand and it causes this cataclysmic collapse throughout the entire supply chain. Um, and so like the, the rest of the book basically is, is talking about how to react better to those type of, you know, like black swan events that, that you, know, you can react to. My question was, is like, okay, well, like, how do I get better at either predicting or anticipating or setting up the structure so that way, uh, whenever those, those, you know, uh, those uh, chaotic events happen, uh, you know, how do, how do we like, you know, is there any kind of preemptive work that we can do to help fix that? And so uh, I ended up reading a book uh, by a guy named Gleek about, uh, called Chaos, which was, it was interesting, but it didn't really like answer my question. It was just like, basically it's like, there's so many variables out, out there at the, the micro level that the world is chaotic. 
the end. And so like my question to you is is like like where should I go now to really kind of like you know grow in that area or or do you know or is there a way? So yeah, great question, Brandon. And that's uh, that's exactly what we do at SAMS is, is we go through, we read a lot of books on systems theory, on complexity, on chaos, uh, and, and what you do, how you deal with complex systems. So that, that's my recommendation to you is keep reading in that that field, that discipline of, of systems theory and complexity. Um, one of the best books, place where you could start is there was a guy named Bartolomfi. Uh, a Hungarian scientist uh, wrote, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, that essentially kind of founded systems theory. And his, his book is still the basic, uh, provides the basic theory, theoretical understanding of, of how systems work. And it's just that notion of, you know, we can never, in a complex world that we live in, where everything is interrelated, you can never do just one thing because everything you do necessarily is gonna affect something else. So we may try to solve some problem in one area, but necessarily our solution is gonna affect a whole bunch of different areas. We just have to understand those connections uh, to understand the impact of what we do. So that, that's the basics of, of systems theory. Right. You know, the, uh, the, beyond that, it's, it's just being comfortable with, okay, yeah, if everything's interrelated, how do we know what our impacts are gonna be? There's necessarily going to be uncertainty out there. Anytime we take action, we've got to be comfortable with that and, and just know that, okay, instead of just doing one big thing, we may have to do many little things over and over again in order to get where we're trying to go. Because, you know, this, this necessity for adaptation, uncertainty, emerging phenomenon, those, those types of things. I mean, that's, that's exactly... Uh, uh, kind of the focus of a lot of what we do at SAMS is how to understand and then deal with, with those complex uh, situations, complex problems. You know, another good place to go is SAMS, uh, look at the SAMS design course, uh, has, has a good, pretty good reading list uh, of books that you can pick and choose from and, and, uh, and read. And if you, know, you want to get in contact with me or anybody else does, I'd, I'd be happy to, to, to provide that uh, reading list to you. In terms of books you can, you can read yeah absolutely i'll put your uh your contact uh information on uh in the show notes um another question for you so we we have uh you know like i said we, we have a lot of people that are definitely interested in uh in going to sam's um uh, and and you know people that are on their on their way to uh to kind of learn what what you guys have to offer um in you know this podcast is meant for uh, or, or kind of aimed at it's for everybody but really aimed at our formation uh and really would like to to kind of help coach our officers on, on how to uh, to show up there and be uh, successful at SAM. So what are you what are you looking for in somebody who uh, is thinking about going applying? Um, you know what what are attributes that jump off the page and say like this guy is the guy that we want? Yeah, that's um, that's a, a tough question, but an important question. You know, I, th I think the the first thing is we're looking for somebody who's motivated. So you've got to be a volunteer for for what you're going to do because it, it isn't easy and it, it's something that takes you out of the, you know, the normal career path and, and put you onto a, a road to where things just get harder and harder as you go. Um, but it's, it's rewarding to do that. Um, so they've got to be motivated. They ought to be uh, intellectually curious and, and kind of, you, you can see that based upon, you know, the things they read, uh, the questions they ask, um, you know, who they, who they are. So that, that's an important uh, trait as well. Um, you know, the, the, the real requirements, you've got to be a graduate of the staff college. So whether you do it uh, by correspondence or uh, in person uh, at Leavenworth or somewhere else, um, you got to, you know, get yourself uh, into one of those programs. Um, and then, uh, you know, when you go through the selection process, the things we look at are first, uh, you know, we do an interview where we look for those qualities, the traits that we were just talking about. Um, but also we, we give a, a test that, that looks at your kind of knowledge of current events, of geography, of uh, doctrine. Um, so all those, those things that you as a, as a military professional ought to, ought to be uh, uh, steeped in. Um, so I, I would recommend, you know, you keep reading, reading doctrine, keep up with your, with your craft and your profession. Um, pay attention to the news and what's going on in the world. Uh, and and keep keep reading in a wide variety of, of uh, disciplines, just like you are. You know, uh, it's not just military history or, or 
military things, but you know, read some read some science fiction, read uh, you know, some regular fiction, read historical fiction, read uh, you know, some uh, philosophy, read read across the, the disciplines. That's good advice. Yeah, uh, Colonel Rolls, you have any last uh, questions? Yeah, I, well, first off, I just want to thank Dr. Gorman for coming on. I, uh, you know, one thing that I, I'm a, having been through both courses, the AMSP program and now the ASLSP program, so basically the majors course and now the colonel's course. I mean, SAMS is transformative. I'm a big, I mean, but don't talk bad about SAMS around me, I'll tell you that, because you're going to have a fight on your hands, but it's just transformative. You think differently and you are just a completely different officer in all ways. My wife often comments the difference she saw when I, you know, before I went to Sam's and where, what I became afterwards. And I think, you know, a lot of it is for people like Dr. Uh, Scott Gorman, who's basically dedicated his life to the, to the profession of educating our force and taking it really to the next level. Because I think Sam's, I'm convinced, Sam's makes the U.S. Army officer corps significantly different than any other. I mean, the Germans have their general staff college. Uh, but we're right up there with that. And it's, it's, you, you can, uh, I remember when I went to seventh ID, I was treated so much different because I was quote unquote, the Sam's guy. And I've seen it everywhere I've gone is the difference it's make it makes in you, but there's an obligation with it because you're, you're the obligation. I'll tell everybody that the thing about Sam's is you have to, now you're the face of the organization and you represent the organization everywhere you go. Cause you're not necessarily known as, you know, you know, major or somebody, you're now the Sam graduate. And I want to commend, you know, Dr. Scargo, you've been there for 14 years, 14 years, I believe. I mean, he's the one that's crafted these officers for 14 years. He's done a marvelous job now, Colonel. So with that, I have the utmost respect for him. Uh, also, he's also grading my comprehensive exam here in a couple of weeks. So it's good that I throw compliments his way. <laughs> but the last, the last uh, question I want to spend to Dr. Gorman is when I was an AMSP, he, uh, I think he was like one of our last days. We said, Dr. Gorman, you know, what is your reading list? What's your most influential books? And I remember he said, I'm not going to answer that. It's up to you to build your own reading list. But now that I have him here, I'm going to see if he'll answer that question for everybody. What's been his most, what's on his reading list? What's his most influential books? Well, first, thanks Greg, for, for the, the words. Uh, not all of them are true, but I appreciate you saying them anyway. But I, I want to say that uh, you know, if you're looking for what Sam's represents, uh, you can look to uh, Colonel Craig Burrells because he really does epitomize uh, what, what a Sam's graduate ought to be. Um, he's a two-time offender, having gone through AMSP and getting ready to graduate from ASLSP. He's going to go on to be a seminar leader, so be an instructor in the AMSP course here for too long, coach, uh, teach, and mentor uh, young majors. Um, and just the things he's done in his career – um, the selfless service he's, he's given uh, epitomizes what we're trying to, to, to develop in SAMS. So, you know, good on Craig. And he, he is an example of what a SAMS graduate ought, ought to be. Um, all right. Reading list. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you. You can't, you can't do that. To me. <laughs> I can tell you what I'm reading right now, but that, that, that won't uh, necessarily help you. But yeah. I'll, I'll, Best thing you can do, like I said, is I, I'm more than willing to, if somebody wants to uh, get in touch with me and, you know, hey, what's Sam's reading about this topic or, or you know, just general questions about what, what do you recommend? Yeah, I, I always have books to recommend, but the list is endless. You ought to just keep uh, keep reading more and more. And uh, if I give you one book, uh, that's not going to, it's not going to end it. Remember, we're strategic thinkers. We know there's a, there's, there's something that comes, comes next, something comes after, continuation. That just kind of be, uh, make me wonder, like why, like uh, why do you guard a uh, like your your reading list so so tightly? Well, I mean, I, I don't think I guard it tightly, but there there are books that have have meaning for me for very personal reasons, right? Right. Um, uh, I don't know. I, sometimes I, I'll recommend uh, William James uh, his book called Pragmatism. But you you might read that book, Brandon, and it means absolutely nothing to you. Um, but for me, it was meaningful, right? It, it changed the way I thought. It, it gave me some insights into questions I was I was dealing with, you know. So it's it's on my my reread list, right? Um, but that, that's why I I'm, I'm very careful about you know if somebody asks me, hey, what's your, what are your favorite books or what do, what do you recommend? Well, what, what are you looking for? You know, what kind of what kind of questions you are you wrestling with right now? Maybe I, I can I can tailor my suggestion to, to 
what's best for you. Uh, that, that resonates with me a lot, uh, especially as a chaplain, people will come to me with, with similar questions. And that, that's usually my answer is just because like, well, I, I can tell you a, a dozen books that, that made a big difference to me, but like where you're at in your life and what you're talking about and what you're interested in really uh, is going to, you know, uh, it's go that's going to determine a lot. Like you just like talking about the, the, the book on chaos. There was a guy texting me last night about it and he's like, well, I don't know. The reviews say it's, it's terrible. And I'm thinking in my head, like, well, it was pretty clunky. It was hard, hard to get through, but it was, I was trying to answer a question that I had for myself. And so, uh, so that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, uh, absolutely. Well, Dr. Gorman, uh, we're, uh, just at over a, an hour. So I just want to thank you for, uh, for coming on. It's super awesome to, to hear from you. Uh, we, and the, the Cascade Rifles value, uh, like a lot of like intellectual conversations. So I'm sure this episode will do uh, very well. I've, I've spent, untold hours in various people's offices uh, debating and arguing about uh, books and ideas, which is something I deeply love about the, uh, the organization. So I'm sure that the, uh, they'll be super happy to hear from you. Well, thanks, Brandon, for inviting me. I, I had a good time. And thanks to you too, Craig. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with uh, uh, that last thought about uh, the power of the intellect and why that's so important. You know, the, the Sam's motto, the mind is the key to victory. And I truly believe that. Um, so, so keep reading, keep talking about those things. And, uh, and, and that, that's what's going to bring us to victory. Mind is the key to victory. I love it, sir. Thank you. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.